I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo once again flying solo because Sam took another vacation. So it's just me. I'm by myself. I'm taking over the show. I will have a guest though. Eric Eager from the PFF forecast will join me talking all things NFL. You don't want to miss that because a lot of the stuff that you guys have heard here on the PFF NFL podcast, stuff like running backs don't matter and defense doesn't matter. I get to the heart of it because Eric, it's his fault. It's his fault that that's what we've discussed. So I asked him about it. We're going to get into what that stuff actually means. So we're going to do that in just a little bit. But first, Sam's out. So I get to go full monologue style again. My offensive line, not mine, it's PFFs. Offensive line rankings are out. So we're going to go through the offensive line rankings, and then we'll wrap it up uh, with Eric of the PFF forecast. Um, again, talking all things analytics and findings but also stuff about the Chiefs the Rams the Titans the Julio trade Julio Jones going to the Tennessee Titans Uh, I need to give the initial take on it I said a couple weeks ago this is the most important move for the Titans this offseason full disclosure by the way I'm on the wrong side of the table here did you guys notice that can we get that shot again I'm on the wrong side of this is very uncomfortable I'm on the wrong side and it's because of a camera deal we got here but I got to be on this side of the I'm on Sam's side of the table and it's like moving from right tackle to left tackle. I just, it's very uncomfortable. So bear with me. Okay. I might, I, I got my mic adjusting hand is different now. Everything's off. But the Julio Jones signing to the Titans, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it was the Titans needed Julio more than anybody else. I, I do fully believe that. I think the Titans were the team a few months ago I was most concerned about. And now I'm far less concerned about them. I know it's a lot of eggs in one basket and Julio has battled injuries and he's not a guy that you know plays a thousand snaps every single year but it was a necessary move they needed to reshore uh, shore up the secondary they needed a right tackle they needed to figure out the playmaker situation the pass catchers and they invested in Janoris Jenkins in the secondary they invested in Caleb Farley uh, Dylan Radon's they're hoping second round tackle is going to be the starting right tackle there and then Julio paired with AJ Brown I mean those are the types of things uh, if you came into the offseason knowing they had to fix those things, that, that Tennessee had to fix them, and they made the right moves. Okay, so Julio to the Titans, potentially a huge move. We'll talk about it more with Eric. All right, let's get into the offensive line rankings. They're over at pff.com. 1 through 32. It's over 10,000 words of greatness, but I know you're just going to go read about your team. And I tried to give every team some love. Try to talk about all their starters, maybe some of the depth and their backups. Uh, This is different. You know, when you're ranking offensive lines, it is different from what I did last week, which was the pass catchers, the the receivers and tight ends. When you have receivers and tight ends, there are teams like the Titans before they signed Julio Jones, where you could say A.J. Brown is good enough 
that this team, even though everybody behind them isn't good, they're not the worst team in the league. This superstar can carry them. Or a team like the Vikings, where it's really two options. Irv Smith's pretty good, but it's two options. It's Adam Thielen. It's Justin Jefferson. And they're a top five caliber team. They have two really good receivers, a pretty good tight end. But wide receiver three and four is a question mark. There's not really a great backup tight end in there. Um, so when you're, when you're ranking pass catchers, you're balancing the stars with the teams that have really good depth, that have a good receiver three and four, four and two or three tight ends to throw to. Throw to. With an offensive line, the stars matter far less. And it is way more important to, again, be good across the board, right? Not, you don't necessarily need that star left tackle. You need to be solid at every position. Having stars does help. It does make up for deficiencies elsewhere, but not as much as maybe other units. So let's go through. Do we want to start at the top or the bottom? I'm talking to nobody here because it's just me. I'm going to start at the bottom. I'm going to start at the teams that ranked last in our offensive line rankings, and we'll work up to the teams that finished first. Um, just And here's how I do this, right? I go through. I write up the team. I write about all the players and what they've done and what we think they're going to do. And then what I do is I throw in a number into a spreadsheet. And it's just this, based off what I think, perception-wise. And this is just how I start. We use numbers to, to get to these final rankings. But I like to just make an estimate for where I think th this team is going to land. So the, t the 32nd offensive line ranking uh, team right now is the New York Giants. And when I put their number in, I was like, they feel like 28. You know, I don't know where they'll, where they'll end up landing. But they ended up landing dead last in our rankings and I, I don't feel great about the Giants being last I do think there's a path to them getting better I can see it but it's just they have a lot of question marks Andrew Thomas the starting left tackle did struggle last year as a rookie he got a little bit better down the stretch but he was a disappointment we don't know if Nate Solder is even going to be on the team Nate Solder generally is about a league average tackle. He did have his worst uh, season of his career since his rookie season the last time we saw him, though, in 2019. Nate Solder is battling at right tackle with Matt Paird, uh, second round, uh, third round, second year player who we really liked as a devel de developmental prospect coming out of UConn. I think Matt Paird is going to be a good player. I don't know if he's ready yet. I think the Giants would love for him to be the right tackle. But if you have Matt Parrott and Andrew Thomas as your starting tackles, yeah, you've got some questions there. It's not set in stone. Uh, Will Hernandez has not been great at left guard. He's disappointed as a second-round pick. Shane Lemieux might be the guy that takes over there. He had a 32 grade last year. It seems like the Giants might want him to be the left guard there. Nick Gates, it was his first year playing center last year. First year. And... That was risky. He wasn't great either. 59.7 grade. He should get better, though. That second year playing center. He had never played center. He had never taken a snap or snapped the ball at center in the NFL or in college. And then Zach Fulton comes in. He's a league average guard battling Kenny Wiggins and Jonathan Harrison and others. So there's nowhere on that Giants offensive line where you just feel great. But in the positive world, you could say Andrew Thomas takes a step forward, Nick Gates takes a step forward, and, and Nate Solder is on the football team. It's either Solder's on the team or Matt Parrott beat him out, and that's probably going to be a league average tackle if, if one of those two things happens. So you can see this world where the Giants aren't last, but right now on paper, I think they have to be. So the Giants are 32nd in our offensive line rankings. I'm not going to go through every team, or maybe I will list every team, but we'll, you can read it all on pff.com we'll go through the teams at the extremes the carolina panthers are number 31 they're a team that has had russell okung 
and Taylor Mouton as their two tackles the last two years. Mouton comes back. He's by far their best player. This is that example of A.J. Brown and, and then a whole bunch of question marks from a, a you know Titans perspective before they got Julio. That's the Panthers right now. Mouton, 81.6 grade last year. He's been fantastic. He's been one of the better tackles in the NFL, and he has ranked in the top 20, what is it, top 18 tackle each of the past three years. So Mouton, consistent, good. Left tackle. The wild card here is Brady Christensen, their third-round pick, because Cam Irving right now is slated to be the starter. Cam Irving has only had one career grade above 50 in his career, PFF grade. He was, a, he was a 58 last year. It was just on two, 279 snaps. Irving started his career as a center. He was a left tackle and a center at Florida State. If he's the starting left tackle for the Panthers, I think that's, you know, clearly a big weakness. Uh, Greg Little, former second-round pick, he's, he hasn't developed as expected. So Brady Christensen, the third-round tackle out of BYU, which was great. Sam mentioned to me he watched that little Panthers draft room series where they said they had Christensen as a second-round guard and a third-round tackle. So there's a chance they want Christensen to come in and maybe play left guard. But if he could play tackle, 95.9 grade last year at BYU, he's a little bit older. He wasn't challenged a ton at BYU against great pass rushers. But if he's that good and he could play left tackle, that helps the Panthers not be the 31st-ranked offensive line. But if he's at tackle, left guard is Pat Elfline. You know, he, they brought him in in free agency. He's never, uh, he's like Cam Irving, a history of not grading above 50. Anything below 50 is pretty bad. Elfline has graded at that level uh, pretty consistently his entire career. Matt Paradis at center has had his two worst seasons since coming over to Carolina after four really good years with the Denver Broncos. And then Dennis Daly comes back. Uh, he's healthy now, going to play right guard. Uh, you played left tackle as a rookie a couple years ago. Another question mark. So it's it's Mouton and a bunch of question marks for the Panthers. That's why they have to be 31st. All right, Miami Dolphins. They're 30th, right? Because when, I, when I'm alone here, I do try to bring the positive, right? I know when Sam's alone, he gives you the, the fatal flaws, which you guys seem to like. Everybody liked to listen to the fatal flaws episode uh, with Austin Gale when he filled in. But I'm trying to skew positive here. So even these worst offensive lines... I'm trying to give you a, a reason for them to be even better. How could they be better? How could they rank a little bit higher? But as of right now, we have to put the Dolphins at 30. Here's why. Austin Jackson, at left tackle, graded a 52 last year. First round pick. You can make some assumptions with offensive linemen getting at least a little bit better year over year. But that is a rough starting point. Uh, Matt Skura comes in to play center. He only had a 49 grade last year for the Ravens. He's generally been a 50s, low 60s type of player. So there's no... There's no saying Skour is going to be a little bit better. Um, the best rookie that they had last year, they had three rookies, Solomon Kindly, uh, Kinley, Solomon Kinley, and Robert Hunt were the other two. Robert Hunt came in and played right tackle at a good, reasonable level. He was the most promising of the three rookie starters for the Dolphins. If he plays right tackle again, Jesse Davis kicks into guard, fine. But Jesse Davis, again, hasn't really performed all that well for the majority of his career. Uh, there's no evidence for him moving forward other than we do see, you hear me say this all the time, we do see some offensive line jumps in years three, four, and five. So Davis is in that range where he could take that step forward. They'll need that. They need Davis to take a step forward at guard. Robert Hunt take that step forward at right tackle after a good starting season. Austin Jackson's got to get better at left tackle. Uh, Liam Eikenberg comes in from Notre Dame, played tackle there, probably plays at guard for the Dolphins. Nothing there in that list screams, hey, we're good. 
we're all set. You know, this, this, this team's looking good. There's a lot of what-ifs. This is exactly how we described the Jets' offensive line last year, right? They brought in a ton of talents. They drafted Makai Becton, and we said, well, if these four things happen, they might have O-line 15. And those four things didn't happen. So, but that's where the Dolphins are right now. Uh, we've mentioned a ton on this show, too. Don't look at sack totals. They cut down their sacks by about 20 last year, but it's because Fitzpatrick threw the ball faster than ever, and Tua got rid of the ball pretty quickly. Sack totals do not determine how well the offensive line has played. They whiffed on a ton of blocks that didn't necessarily show up. So we're just ranking that offensive line performance. All right, the number 29 team, fourth worst in this ranking is the Pittsburgh Steelers. All right, the Steelers' hate continues on the show. But again, we have to go and say they're replacing three out of five starters, including Hall of Famer Marquise Pouncey. Where are the Steelers going to get better? They were a mid-tier offensive line last year. Also, when ranking offensive lines, you have to balance pass blocking and run blocking. There are some lines who are really good at one and not at the other. The Steelers were the worst run blocking offensive line in the NFL last year. Run blocking does matter, right? We're going to talk later with Eric about do running backs matter. Run blocking does matter because that is what is a bigger driver of rushing production. And you don't want to average 3.3 yards per carry. You want to at least be efficient when you are going to choose the run, to run the ball. The Steelers run blocking has to get better. And their pass blocking took a step back last year as well with one of the fastest, you know, quickest passing games in the NFL. So they've got Chukwuma Okorafor moving from right tackle to left tackle. It was his first full season last year, 58 grade. He's got to get better at left tackle. Zach Banner has done some nice things in the run game. He can lean on people. He's a monster. He's going to play right tackle. Uh, but he's only played, he's played about 300 snaps in his NFL career since 2017. So we don't know exactly what we're going to get from Zach Banner. And he hasn't been great from a pass protection standpoint. Center, J.C. Hassenauer, battling rookie Kendrick Green, third rounder. We don't know who's going to replace Marquise Pouncey at center. And I think guard is the place where you feel best about the Steelers' offensive line. Kevin Dotson did some nice things as a rookie. David DeCastro has been their best offensive lineman, most consistent lineman over the last few years. However, he's still coming off his worst grade so when we're ranking offensive lines it's it's how many of these guys can we count on going forward how much information do we have where we could say he's a check he's a check he's a check and, and just you know we'll, when we get to the top offensive lines you'll you'll understand the difference the Steelers don't have that they don't have guys that we know we can count on but a core four and banner once again they're in that like three to four year window in the NFL five-year window for banner where maybe there could be that improvement. You can see that, but it usually comes with experience that Banner doesn't have. A core four just has the one year as a starter. We might be one year removed from even those guys uh, making that, that leap from offensive linemen. All right, last, last bottom tier offensive line I want to break down. It's the Jets at 28. I know they've invested heavily, but there are still questions. We've got uh, Connor McGovern, potentially at center with, with Dan Feeney. McGovern... Uh, Feeney's been a below average center, but they did bring him in. McGovern's been an okay center. Makai Becton looks really good. Rookie As a rookie last year, he had one of the highest percentage of positively graded run blocks in the NFL. He was as advertised from a run game perspective. Uh, I, would, I will admit we underrated him. Um, I don't regret underrating him, but I will admit the data. What we said, what we said about Makai Becton coming out was, 
there are questions, right? We he didn't we didn't see him on those true pass sets. We didn't see him straight up pass protect with no play action, with no rollouts on five and seven step drops. We didn't see it very often at Louisville. And when he did it, the grade wasn't great. Last year, it was much better. He proved it. He worked with our guy Duke over at OL Masterminds. Duke made Mekhi Becton, this 365-pounder, got him looking really good. So he had a great a great rookie season, 74.4 overall grade. Not as good as Tristan Wirfs, but a really good rookie season. And Mekhi Becton absolutely mauls people in the running game. He did have one of the higher percentage of negatively graded plays. He wasn't perfect, but he will create room for their running backs. Then you have Elijah Vera Tucker, the guy that they traded up to get at number 14. They said they had top 10 grade, the Jets, on Vera Tucker. He could be an excellent left guard. I think there's a chance he could battle at right tackle. Uh, George Fant is the right tackle there, and this is part of the reason why the Jets have to be ranked lower. George Fant, he's been in the league for a few years now. He's improved since he looked – I mean, he was a basketball player. He played basketball at Western Kentucky and then had to transition – to football he was a young football player he's gotten better since he just you know looked like a basketball player blocking in an NFL game in his rookie season he's gotten better since that point but still he's a 61 grade below average tackle last year so that position needs to get better Avera Tucker could move to right tackle I think they want him at guard though so let's slot him at left guard it's Feeney and McGovern at center that's okay and the whole right side is just okay Greg Van Roten 63 grade last year mid-tier from a guard standpoint, I mentioned Fant as a below-average right tackle. Um, so they are a team with Morgan Moses still out there, uh, a, a guy that is coming off of a really good season in Washington, has been released, and I know the, uh, the Jets have been kicking the tires on Morgan Moses. That changes their prospects really quickly. We're going to re-rank these offensive lines in July. Just adding a Morgan Moses and upgrading over George Fant at right tackle probably moves the Jets potentially into the teens. Um, so I always talk about having – you know, one player doesn't move the needle. It's not a superstar-driven unit, but you have to avoid weaknesses. And right now, I think you would say George Fant is a weakness, and a, a Morgan Moses at right tackle turns it into a strength. And that is significant when the you know when you're when you're when you're looking at that starting five. So the Jets, like these other teams at the bottom, they just have more question marks. All right, let's count down the top five. We'll count down the top five offensive lines starting with the Tampa Bay Bucks they're bringing back all their starters they got incredible play from Tristan Wirfs he was the best rookie tackle by a wide margin last year one of the most valuable tackles in the entire NFL last season so you get Tristan Wirfs he was an absolute steal at right tackle Donovan Smith so this is where all of you fans when I'm telling you that your offensive line's not good and it's not going to get better you just throw Donovan Smith right back at me because he has literally gotten better all six years of his career. A better grade from 2015 through 2021 every single season. 72.8 last year. Donovan Smith still has some ugly reps. He still has some games where he's, poor, he's got to yell, watch out, to the quarterback. You get the watch out block. You just whiff. You, you get the watch out block. Donovan Smith has that, but far less than he used to. So Donovan Smith's gotten better every single year. That becomes a pretty good tackle tandem. And then they're really solid on the interior with Ali Marpet, uh, with Ryan Jensen, and Alex Kappa. Added a little bit of depth with Robert Hainsey, the tackle out of Notre Dame. So all five starters are coming back. Ali Marpet's graded in the green. Uh, PFF premium stats, you just look at the grades, in the green, right? That's the good side of the grading. You don't want to be, you know, yellow's average, orange and red is bad. 
Uh, Marpet's been a green grade every single year of his career, 80.7 last year. And then Jensen and Kappa, both yellow-green, right? So you're talking, this is one of those teams. You might call Tristan Wirfs a superstar. He's only done it one year. You might call him a superstar, but this is one of those teams. Are there any questions across the board there? Not really. Donovan Smith's answered them. And all those interior, the, the two guards in the in center have been good. So it is solid across the board. That is a good offensive line. It's the Bucks at number five. Put the Saints at number four. Now they have, they're built a little bit differently. They have a couple question marks, but their tackles are so good. They ranked fifth in our, off, actually they finished eighth in our offensive line rankings in 2020. Uh, fifth in 2019. But they've got the best tackle duo in the NFL. I like these guys the best. Teron Armstead, Ryan Ramchak. They're both fantastic in pass protection. They both bring power to the run game. And then from a zone run, run blocking perspective, quickness and technique, they are both excellent players. Teron Armstead, he graded 84.9. He was a top 10 tackle last year. Ramchak actually took a step back last year. It was his fourth year in the NFL, 79 grade. It was actually the worst grade of his four-year career. 79 grade, he was still a top 20 tackle. His first three years in the league, though, were comparable to Joe Thomas, the great Joe Thomas, Hall of Famer. From a grading standpoint, he was right behind Joe Thomas and uh, Jake Long, another guy who looked like he was on his way to a Hall of Fame career, then tapered off after a couple of years. So Ramchek is pretty much as good as we've seen coming onto the scene in the PFF era. So love those two tackles. So those two guys being stars, they're stars at tackle, does that props up the line just a little bit it makes up for what i would say the guard position being the biggest question marks for the saints when you have uh, andrus pete has not been great but he did improve last year he had a couple grades in the 40s last year he got it up to 60 that's your creeping back toward average for andrus pete and then caesar ruiz was their first round pick looked like a pretty good pass protector coming out of michigan he's still young Pass pro was an issue for him last year on his way to 53 grade eric mccoy good solid center uh, he had a couple rough games last year that that dragged him down. He, his grade was actually worse than he was as a center. But I think the two years of Eric McCoy at center for the Saints, you feel really good about him going forward. So you look at the Saints' overall line, two pillars at tackle, a good center, average left guard. I think Ruiz can be an average right guard. You add that up, it's the number four offensive line. So they do have some holes there. But I, I expect those guys to get just a little bit better this year. The number three offensive line, it's the New England Patriots, another team just really good across the board. So they lost Joe Tooney. Joe Tooney has been a fantastic left guard. But just trading for Trent Brown, they bring Trent Brown Brown back from the Raiders. And what, what makes the Patriots so good here is what happened with Michael Onwenu, their sixth-round rookie last year. Onwenu had a 40, an 84 grade. We have never seen anything like that from a sixth-round rookie. So... Unwenu is the key here because he can play anywhere. Last year he did it. He played left guard, right guard, and right tackle. So that flexibility and that rookie performance was so good. It just allows the Patriots a little bit of flexibility. So Unwenu is going to start at left guard. Let's get to the other guys. Isaiah Wynn at left tackle, career high 82.6 grade. He's solid right there. And then they bring in Trent Brown. He is Brown has been a good pass protector. He's 360-plus pounds. You think he should maul people in the run game, and he does sometimes, but he'll lose some blocks. So he's, he's an okay run blocker overall when you balance out the pluses and minuses. But Brown's best season came in 2018 when he was with the Patriots. So he comes back. He's going to play right tackle. So you got a good group of tackles. 
Shaq Mason, one of the best run-blocking guards in the entire league. He's going to play right guard. On Wenu, who I mentioned, he, he goes to left guard, and they bring back David Andrews, who's been just a good, steady center. Pretty much a top 15 center, even though he dropped out a little bit last year, dropped down, but a top 15, top 10 type of center for the majority of his career. So no real weaknesses across the board for the Patriots. They also have a couple reasonable backups. Ted Karras is back as a backup. Justin Heron uh, did a really nice job in, in limited time as a rookie last year. So the Patriots have a little bit of depth, solid starting group across the board. Number two team is the Indianapolis Colts. And this was solidified. I'm expecting Eric Fisher to be on the field. This is what completely solidified them as number two. So the Colts' biggest question mark coming into the offseason was that left tackle spot. If they didn't fill it with an Eric Fisher and it was Sam Tevy, we're still probably talking about the Colts as a top six or seven offensive line. At right tackle, Braden Smith came into the league with Quentin Nelson. Quentin Nelson we'll talk about in a second. Braden Smith came in with Quentin Nelson a couple years ago. He's been a top 15, top 20 type of tackle. Played even better at other times. 80 grade last year. He made one of the most rare moves. You just don't see this. From guard to tackle. We just talked about Onwenu doing it with the Patriots. He was a guard who had to fill in a tackle. You just don't see this often. Or at least you don't see it stick. Braden Smith was a college guard who became one of the best tackles in the NFL. So kudos to the Colts for finding a starting tackle out of a college guard. That doesn't happen often. That's outstanding. Fisher comes in to play left tackle. He is on that Donovan Smith same trajectory i do like watching this there are certain players that come into the league and it's like man they really struggled as rookies but they get incrementally better that was what donovan smith did that's what eric fisher did he was a i don't want to use the word bust i hate using the word bust but he was not worth the number one overall pick in 2013 for the first three or four years of his career but i think it was by about year four better and better and better and he's turned into a top 20 tackle which i keep referencing because it's extremely valuable having a top 15 or top 20 starter that's what eric fisher is when he's healthy so you got fisher you got braden smith at tackle quentin nelson's probably the best offensive lineman in the in the entire nfl that guy has been as advertised since his rookie season mauls people in the run game he's quick enough to make those zone blocks really good in pass pro quentin nelson can do it all so you've got the best guard in all of football mark glowinski former Seahawks player, right? He's another guy who's gotten a little bit better. He's kind of like what George Fant was with the Seahawks years ago. It's like, man, this dude's getting whooped all the time. What do the Seahawks see, see in this guy? The Seahawks have done this a few times where they've kind of taken their lumps with the young guy and then seen him shine elsewhere. And that's what Glowinski's done. He's turned into just a good solid right guard. And that's what Ryan Kelly is at center as well. Ryan Kelly took a bit of a step back last year, but he was a top 10 center in 2019 he's been really consistent overall in his career so we're talking about the Colts having a good tackle tandem a great left guard solid center solid right guard that's the number two offensive line in the NFL that is how you describe a good offensive line not question marks but solid plus across the board and then you get to the Cleveland Browns last year going into the season we ranked them at number six in our offensive line rankings we anticipated them being pretty good they had ranked in the 20s in 2019. The 2019 season was marred by Baker, you know, kind of seeing ghosts, right? He's like, I don't trust my left tackle. I don't trust my right tackle. And he's bailing clean pockets. The line was maybe worse than it even felt at times. And 
they got and we anticipated them getting better. They made some offseason moves to get them to our preseason number six ranking, but their actual ranking was first. Their actual performance last year was number one. And it was because of the breakout season from Wyatt Teller at right guard, but just all their moves that they made essentially paid off. Jack Conklin, they paid him a ton of money to play right tackle to shore that up. He had a career-high 84 grade. Conklin, another guy. He's a good enough pass protector. He's an outstanding run blocker. So the run game on the right side was so good. With Jack Conklin there and then Wyatt Teller, who I mentioned, the classic year three, year four breakout offensive lineman. He was really good in college. Slow start with the Buffalo Bills. The Cleveland Browns take a shot on him. And he paid off last year. He had a 92.3 overall grade. There was a big disparity between pass and run blocking, but from a run blocking perspective, he was off the charts. Just an average pass blocker, room to improve there. But from a run game perspective, the right side of the Browns line was as good as it gets. J.C. Treader has been one of the most dependable starting centers his entire career. He's an 80-plus PFF player. Same thing with Joel Batonio, 85 player. He has been one of the better guards in the entire NFL his entire career. Now, Jedrick Wills at left tackle, only a 62 grade. He disappointed a touch as a rookie. He was down a little bit in that Andrew Thomas range. I think that dropped a little bit later. But Wills showed what you need there. And I think when you're talking about from an offensive line perspective, Batonio's a top five guard. Teller was a top, was the highest graded guard in the NFL. Conklin was a top five to 10 tackle. And Treader was a top five center. When you're really good at those four spots, you can handle average to below average play at the other spot. I think Jedrick Wills gets even better this year at left tackle. Um, I also like the move they made in drafting James Hudson as a potential replacement down the road for Wyatt Teller if uh, they can't pay him coming out of the season. Chris Hubbard's also a good backup. So the Browns have the starters. They have the depth. They have the actual on-field performance last year, and they're all coming back this year. So they have to be the number one offensive line in the NFL. Are there any other interesting teams that we want to hear about? Let's go through some of the rest of the list. Again, you can check it all out at pff.com. I'm not just going to list all the teams, but a couple other notable rankings. The Dallas Cowboys at six. The Cowboys last year finished 27th in our rankings, but it was because of injuries. Tyron Smith injured. Lyle Collins injured before the season. Hip, uh, hip surgery. We're going to assume some health for those guys. If they are healthy, they're really good. Uh, Lyle Collins had a career year in 2019. Tyron Smith has dropped off. He has absolutely dropped off. If you go back, watch him, watch his past sets back in 2015 or 16. It is textbook. It is just teaching tape for how you want to play the left tackle position. It is no longer the case. Tyron Smith has regressed to merely good. He also hasn't played a full season since 2015. So there are some question marks there, but he's a good left tackle. He remains a good left tackle. Lyle Collins could be a really good right tackle. So that's a good starting point for the Cowboys. Uh, Connor Williams, another year three breakout player last year. We could see another step forward from him. He finally graded in the green, got over 70 PFF grade. Uh, and that's a, that's a nice place to be. And then don't forget Zach Martin. I think he graded higher than Quentin Nelson last year at guard. He was the number two graded guard in the NFL last year. Martin's right there with Quentin Nelson maybe the best all-around offensive lineman in the NFL. So on paper, the Cowboys are fine. Uh, the question, the big questions at center, Tyler Biotish, as a rookie last year, graded at 53. They just didn't get great performance at center overall, uh, pretty much since Travis Frederick has retired a couple of years ago, or, or at least got 
got sick and then regressed. But the Cowboys have the pieces to bounce back and be pretty good. I said I wasn't going to go through the whole list, but I got the Chiefs at seven. Is that harsh? You guys want me to shut it down back there? I hear you. You want me to shut it down? I'm rolling right now. We'll wrap it up with this. The Kansas City Chiefs are at number seven. We're going to talk about the Chiefs a little bit with Eric later on. But for all the investment that they made, they're, you know, they're not perfect across the board. Orlando Brown at left tackle, that's good. He's been one of the better tackles in the league. Joe Tooney, one of the best guards. Remmers is a solid right tackle. Austin, Austin Blythe, good, solid center. I use solid a lot because that's what they are. Light green players. That's what they have been these last couple of years. And then right guard LDT comes back, the doctor and Kyle Long. They're the biggest question mark there. No stars on the board. Uh, you might, you know, Tooney's close. Orlando Brown's not really, they're not stars. That is good and solid across the board. That is what looks like the Steelers' offensive lines of the last few years until they dropped off. Just good starters across the board. That's what the Chiefs are, number seven. Go check out the entire rankings over at pff.com. Before I bring in Eric Eager, don't forget PFF is partnered with Symbol. That's S-I-M-B-U-L-L, the stock market for sports that allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when your teams win. Symbol has blended sports and the stock market to offer you a new way to invest and profit off your favorite teams. MLB is in full swing, so you can use the rest of the summer to earn daily cash payouts, and there's still moves being made. NFL free agency, we've been saying, hey, NFL free agency is still happening. You can do this. Well, Julio Jones just got traded, so you can go invest in the Titans if you feel like that's the way to go, or maybe you know sell the Falcons because they just lost Julio Jones. That's how you do it. Use promo code PFF and deposit $10 at symbol.app slash PFF to earn a free PFF annual subscription that's promo code pff with a ten dollar deposit at symbol.app slash pff to earn a free annual subscription all right let's get to eric eager great discussion on analytics and everything that they're doing over there at the pff forecast all right welcome in to eric eager he's the guy he's the numbers guy over on the pff forecast you guys uh if you haven't already subscribe to their podcast go check it out because they're doing great work everything you need betting gambling or just all nfl and looking forward eric how we doing this morning things are going okay uh last week was like the first time in god knows how long that i didn't have like a radio hit or something like a tv hit or something and i was like oh this is refreshing you know, i get to do like my actual job now and and then of course Julio gets traded and like my phone is like, you know, just with blowing up with requests. Uh, so um, it's good. It's good to, it's good to re realize and know that uh, football is King. And even on June 6th uh, and, and now seven, um, you know, it is the top story. It is great because every June, I feel like we get those reminders that June or the first week of June is when the infamous Sam Munson, we notice Sam's not here. Uh, Sam article about Tom Brady. Uh, you've got trash in late May trending because he forgot that Randy Moss played football. I'm just kidding. Trash. Yeah. We know Tyree killed. That was, he's great. But yeah, what people don't know, Eric is yeah. Vice president of what director of, of what now? What, what's your real role because the on-air stuff is just a piece of what you're doing yeah i am the vp of research and development uh my group builds uh you know sort of the intelligence that goes into a lot of the well all of the 
sort of tools that people use for fantasy gambling. Also, uh, what I think you're, you've talked about on your show a number of times, IQ, the, the product that uh, we, we sell to teams. Um, just, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, sort of originates in our group. Um, and it's great. It's, it's fun um, to be able to, you know, talk football not only with you, but also with, you know, mathematicians like uh, Timo Risky and, and, uh, and folks like that, where it's, you know, it, it's just a lot of fun. And, and, uh, and we get to explore uh, sort of notions about the game uh, that, that before I worked at PFF were only my theories. All right, so we'll, we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts there because I think it's great. You guys are really the foundation for, for everything that, you know, the, that our fans are, are seeing um, and also the NFL teams, as you said, and college teams. Let's talk Julio, though. Uh, you guys covered it on the PFF forecast. Go check out their breakdown as well. But what was your instant reaction to Julio going to the, to the Titans and pairing up with A.J. Brown? Well... Interestingly, I think that the I think that the, this salvages a little bit uh, of the offseason for the Titans. That's that's um, my feeling too. That's I, exactly when I look my at feeling. Sort of like what they haven't done. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me of some of the teams that were more fragile going into last season um, that ended up struggling because of the pandemic, but also because of the you know foreseeable injuries and things like that. Where you look, and I know uh, Adore Jackson didn't play much last year. Um, and I know Malcolm Butler, Malcolm Butler actually had a good season. Desmond King wasn't all that great, but you still have to replace those guys in the secondary. And I don't know if Janoris Jenkins and a draft pick are going to do it uh, quite quite as quickly as people think. They also got a like a pass rusher who's not very good at pass rushing, but has a lot of sacks um, in Bud Dupree. Bud Dupree. And, and so I don't think their defense got appreciably better. Um, while I think two of the teams in their division might have gotten better, I Indianapolis probably takes a step back with Rivers gone and, and Wentz in his place, but I think Jacksonville certainly gets better. And, and on the offensive side of the ball, you lose Davis, you lose Johnny Smith, you lose Ryan, uh, you lose Dennis Kelly on the right side of the offensive line. And, and then I think most importantly to all this conversation, you lose Arthur Smith. And so when I when my reaction to this trade was, okay, Tennessee might salvage this season. Um, on the Falcons side, it's unfortunate that, that it came to this, but ultimately once you start of adding it up, it's like, well, they can't even pay their draft picks. Um, if, if this were to happen, they, they really did tie themselves up. I mean, I, I understand taking Kyle Pitts in the sense that you did what you did with Matt Ryan's contract. It would have made the, a rookie quarterback difficult to square with, with both of those contracts on the same team for two years. Um, and, and so this was sort of the natural uh, course of things um, for Atlanta, which is unfortunate because I think if Julio would have stayed with them, given Arthur Smith, um, Pitts and, and then Calvin Ridley, who emerged a season ago as the number one receiver. I, I think that offense could have been really scary. I think now it'll just be moderately frightening. So it, it is. It is amazing because one of the you, you you developed WAR, our wins above replacement metric, and we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But one of the things I always describe to our listeners is just in football, the impact of a star player is so negligible compared to the impact of a star player in other sports, other than quarterback. Right, the quarterback is in a in a different world, but generally when you see a great defensive lineman or even a corner and they have an impact, but it's not at the same as like a, I always use like a James Harden. If he went from one team to another or Mike Trout goes from one team to another, those are, and it's any position, an outfielder or a shortstop. If they go from one team to another, they make the same impact, right? Or a point guard versus a center. It's pretty close, but Julio, is he different? You know, how much of an impact does he really make? And since we always talk about the value of the quarterback and having that top guy, 
What do you make of Matt Ryan and his career and, and how Julio, just the difference in performance with Julio versus without Julio? So, in other words, is Julio the most valuable non-quarterback in the NFL? He's been the second most not, uh, valuable non-quarterback in the there NFL since he entered the league. Antonio Brown, I think, has a, a slight edge over him, which is actually pretty impressive given how much Brown has missed over the past two or three seasons. Um, but... Yeah, he's great. I mean, you're talking about a guy in his prime who adds a win to a team. Um, you know, nowadays, you know, he was about a, a quarter of a win, a third of a win player last season in limited time. Previous season, he was about eight-tenths of a win. So, like, if you assume some health and, and playing a decent amount, he's probably going to be, you're like, you can imagine a half a win, and that's kind of what you saw in the betting markets. Tennessee, over nine wins. Like, it didn't really move that much, but I think that there was some implication that he'd be there. And it kind of traveled up a little bit. I do, do think people are betting into the Titans a little bit now. But, yeah, he's an extremely valuable player. It's 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 changed the way I've thought about football in the sense that, like, if you can't get open, like, the everything else sort of creaks, right? Like, the offensive line looks bad. Um, you know, but Julio's done just a, a yeoman's work of getting open over the past few seasons. And, and Ryan, without him, has not been quite as good. And, and, and I think one of the dings that you can have for, you know, one of the, the positives you can look at with this trade is this idea of, you know, Julio hasn't played 900 or more snaps, I think, since their Super Bowl season, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 2017. I have to go back and look. And so, like, his yards per route run are always so high, but he does take a ton of plays off, even when healthy-ish. And maybe, maybe the Falcons are thinking, you know, most of this is out of necessity, but maybe partially because thinking of, okay, well, if he's not all that reliable on the field in terms of being on the field all the time, maybe we just need to move on. And much like Matthew Stafford had to learn to play without Megatron, uh, Matt Ryan, if he's going to be the franchise quarterback that they're paying him to be, he's got to learn how to play without Julio Jones. I, I'm trying to sort of put lipstick on a pig here in that decision, but that, that does appear like if you're trying to look at a, you know, some reasoning as to why the Falcons would do something like this other than the cap, that might be one. Uh, in that Julio simply has not been on the field as much as some of the other receivers who are playing thousand, a thousand snaps or more. And that's likely a part of the the war equation that you talked about with Antonio Brown. You know, being on the field is part of the value equation, so to speak. So if you are being extremely productive on fewer snaps, that will hurt overall. Um, I'm with you, though, as far as the Titans needed to salvage this offseason because they came in with massive holes in the secondary, right tackle was an issue, and then receiver. I just ranked all the receiver and tight end units. We have to go back and re-rank it. I actually pre-rode, you know, if Julio goes to the Titans. But they were 27th, I believe, in, in the rankings last week because it was A.J. Brown and then Josh Reynolds as the number two. And then maybe a rookies, Racy, Racy McMath and Des Fitzpatrick and, you know, a whole bunch of guys who have not done anything in the NFL. I think the Titans needed Julio more than any other team. And now that vaults them probably right around 10. They don't have depth. When it comes to pass catchers with John U. Smith moving on, but it was just much needed. And, and I just, I don't want to explore Ryan Tannehill without pretty good pass catchers. I don't want to see him. Most of his career, he hasn't had that. And, you know, the last two years, he's been fantastic, but I just don't want to see him with subpar pass catchers. So I felt it was like a necessary move with the Titans. Um, I got to talk Derrick Henry really quick because you guys are team running backs don't matter. Um, just so we know, this is the. Eric, this is the nuanced podcast here, the PFF NFL podcast. I, I like to bring nuance, and I don't like to say running backs don't matter. I say maybe they're just not as valuable as you think. But you guys on the forecast, you're bold, and you, 
you know, you just you just say it like it is. But I, I got I to gotta bring up Derrick Henry. Is he the outlier? How do, how do, we, how do we explain Derrick Henry and, and legitimately how much value does he actually bring to the table, even if it's perceived as just incredible across the NFL? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually wrote this in the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers article last week as to the whole, like, why PFF isn't the only one that hates Pittsburgh. And, and I think running backs don't matter is sort of this uh, quip that is meant to cover up the idea that running back, like the, the running game is not all that sensitive to the strength of the running back. And, um, and running backs, generally speaking, don't end up, you know, being worth the deals that they sign for or the draft picks that they that they end up with you can get two-year stretches like i'm i'll say like henry was worth about a quarter of, the, of a win the last two years uh alvin Kamara similarly that's high for a running back um and, and we've seen whether it be the big data bowl data or some of the stuff that we've done internally like he's been able to maintain brilliance uh for longer than most running backs now the question becomes when you sort of take a step back and look and say okay predictively what does that mean for Tennessee after you give him like, you know, 400 or so touches? What is that? What is like this season? What does it mean for him to be, um, you know, when, I think we, we hold it constant that he's going to be amazing this year and we hold it. And, and it's like, well, that's that's like not great. like the things that you try to hold constant in the NFL are things that sort of are stable. Right. Like when I talk about Kansas City, it's like head coach, quarterback. Those are the most stable things in the world. I'm going to bank on that. Once you start getting into the, okay, the play of the running back, the play of the secondary, the play, it's like those are a little bit tenuous. And so you can sort of whack-a-mole and fix other things. But like what sneaks up on you, and I, I talk about Minnesota this way because I think that they're very similar last season to what the Titans are this year. When you when you whack-a-mole on one side of the, uh, of the roster, then the other things sort of like sneak up on you and don't perform as well. And I think that that's maybe a leap for the Titans. Now they are going to play, they're going to face a lot more too high, right. And a lot fewer men in the box. So maybe Henry can overcome some, you know, what would be perceived downswings in performance by just facing lighter boxes. But that's something when you're, you, you choose to be negative on Tennessee. I think that's a reasonable issue to have with them, which is just that they've given Henry so many carries and while I think it's amazing that he's been able to sort of overcome expectations over the past few years, like expectations, like most players are the rule and not the exception. And, and if you let time go on long enough, most people end up being the rule. Tennessee is so fascinating. I always say they've got the dudes on the field. There are certain games where Derrick Henry just decides, I'm going to be bigger, faster, stronger than everybody. A.J. Brown does that. Julio Jones now has that. It, um, and I think, you know, Caleb Farley at, at corner, their first rounder, you know, has that ability. But from a cornerback standpoint, Tennessee is one of those teams where um, it might just be their, their stars uh, potentially taking over. I don't want to spend all day on Tennessee, but with Ryan Tannehill, I think it's, I think it's easy to to downplay Derrick Henry by saying, well, Derrick Henry was there before Ryan Tannehill. Why wasn't Derrick Henry this great? He was good, but he wasn't this great yeah. when Marcus Mariota was the quarterback. But it's not like they brought in Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers and then Derrick Henry got better. They brought in Ryan Tannehill. So it's like this chicken or egg type thing. Ch Ryan Tannehill was a Marcus Mariota-ish level quarterback before he became 90-plus grade Ryan Tannehill over the last two years. What do you make of Tannehill's career in this resurgence over the last couple of years? I think 
it's weird. I said that, and people get offended no matter what you say about quarterbacks. So like, I don't care. But like, the Tannehill, it, Todd Downing's the offensive coordinator now. In 2017, when he got his turn, his one chance to be OC in our offensive coordinator rankings in that season, he was the worst. He 31st was Dowell Loggins. 30th of that was Adam Gase. Adam Gase, of course, not that particular season. That was Jay Cutler because Tannehill was hurt. But Adam Gase, obviously, the coordinator that got the worst out of uh, Ryan Tannehill in 2018 as a member of the Miami Dolphins. So, like, I think Tannehill has shown me enough over the past two seasons to sort of to sort of imply that he's better than a quarterback that's going to be the absolute worst when his play calling is the absolute worst and the absolute best when his play calling is the absolute best. But I do think any reasonable person is going to look at this and say, okay, part of it was Arthur Smith, but Arthur Smith coached the first six or seven games of the 2019 season. And I always joke, like everybody says that, that Henry was, you know, Henry set up Tannehill. I was like, well, that's awfully uh, un, uh, inconsiderate of Henry not to have set up Marcus Mariota the first right. six weeks of that year. And, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, I do think that it was a good marriage between Tannehill and and Smith. And you take Smith out of that equation and you put in Downing, who I know is promoted internally. But we've seen this happen before. We saw Starkeesian promoted internally for Shanahan. Right. It's just not the, the same intuition, right? Like, if a guy developed the offense himself, you just get better play calling than the guy that comes in and says, not to worry, I'm going to call the exact same plays. And that almost never works out. And so I that's another ding. like to me julio is going to have to overcome a defense that's not quite as good an offense the rest of the weapons which aren't quite as good i know they acquired josh reynolds but he's just a guy um and, and the inevitable regression that comes with changing offensive coordinators because like the league's trying to catch up to the titans too like, I, and to me i see it as two moving things the league is catching up to what arthur smith is doing you saw that a bit last year they weren't quite as efficient in many ways, especially in the passing game as they were in 2019 and Daniel starts. But then you also have the fact that the actual guy who is responsible for all that efficiency as the play caller is being taken out for sort of a, a discount version of that. And so those are two things that are competing against the Titans this season. Um, and Julio's got to overcome those and Tannehill's got to overcome those. And while I think Tannehill's good enough to not completely flounder in this situation, I think it's a reasonable assumption that he won't be as good as he was, you know, the last you know, season and a half. But I thought that last year too, and he, and he started off that way, but he started, you know, but by middle of the season, Tannehill was really good again. But, it, but, it, but it, it is true because, uh, because it's such a run heavy attack. It's basically like a season and a quarter of elite play from Tannehill, right? It's because he started late in 2019. It's really about a season and a quarter. So I would, I, I agree that there's probably some regression there. Um, what you said about changing coordinators, though, um, I didn't want to discuss this, but it reminds me of the Rams. I discussed them on the last podcast a little bit, how I'm, I feel like the betting markets are so high on the Rams. I feel like everything is so – we might be too, so high on the Rams. Like, what is pushing people toward the Rams? And defensively, not only were they one of the best last year, they did not allow anything down the field. How much does losing Brandon Staley, he was the coordinator last year, how much does losing Brandon Staley going from him to Raheem Morris? There's a little bit of a Sarkeesian-Shanahan situation there, right? Is Raheem Morris going to run the same defense? Is he going to run what he knows a little bit more? Is there a hybrid? Were the Rams just going to regress anyway? Are we too high on the Rams and Matthew Stafford being the guy over there? 
<laughs> Those are a lot of great questions. I think my answer to why people are so, um, you know, excited about the Rams is like, who else is there to be excited about in the NFC, right? You look at, you look at this sort of betting markets and it's very clearly Tampa Bay, uh, right. your guy Brady. I think like the, all, you know, my, my podcast co-host George Shahuri was trying to talk me into Tom Brady for MVP. And I'm like, dude, like they're they're They might be uncontested the whole season. We might never even see them on Sunday night football flex because they're going to be like 10 point favorites in every game in the second half of the year. And you know, then I think it's there, a, who I think it's it, a good right? MVP like, bet. We Green went through Bay, this Green the Bay other day. Without Rodgers is not, you know, Green Bay with Rodgers is clearly second, I think. Right. But but we're not assured Rodgers is going to be there. And then after that, it's what San Francisco. San Francisco might be starting a rookie quarterback half the time. Um, and then you have LA. You have Seattle. But Seattle is like the plus three hundred to win their own division. Then you go to the NFC North, and you know, sure you can make a case for Minnesota, Chicago. You go to the East. Dallas, okay, I guess, like, they have an elite quarterback, but who knows? Washington, like, are we really counting on Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, to take a team and, and add some wins to that? Um, maybe the Giants will sneak up on people this year. But the the answer is really, like, who else is there to like in the NFC? Yeah. Um, and then so, so it sort of takes you back to the intrigue of, of Stafford, who, where, which I don't really see it, but, but you know, obviously everybody else is. McVay, of course. And there, but there is a really, I mean, I think you make an excellent point uh, about Raheem Morris. The interesting thing here, last, last year, Los Angeles was first in the NFL in terms of avoiding missed tackles. The Atlanta Falcons were in the bottom half of the league. Like, there are some, like, aspects of teams like L.A., Indianapolis, where you look in that, you're like, okay, how is this team doing this with, either like, you know, stars and scrubs in, in the case of Indianapolis, far more scrubs and stars, but even in LA where you have a few really good players and then Darius Williams is in the world and so on. And it's, they're solid. They don't give teams extra yards. They don't give teams extra completions to your point about not giving up big plays. And, and I don't know if, if it completely transfers. We saw it when Fangio left the bears and went to go coach the Denver Broncos. Like the bears defense was fine under uh, Chuck Pagano, but not like, elite not number one in the nfl not to you know good enough to win with and and you know to me if you take away la if you put him on defense number six in the nfl that's a lot of ground for matthew stafford to cover in a tough division all right so one i want to discuss some of the findings you've had throughout the years And, and this is what i love right so just the quick history of pff we started somebody started grading in 2008 that was ben stockwell he started grading every player on every play we eventually backfilled 2006 and 7. so there was a point where we had about 10 years of nfl data and we had some you know, we, we we had some intuition about you know hey these these grades are valuable and they they will help predict things but we never really knew uh, uh, eric until you pretty much showed up started playing with the data a little bit and you what i like is you either confirmed things that we thought and maybe said them in a more technical way, or you completely came up with something new that I didn't necessarily think. So one of the things you confirmed was our favorite line here is that, you know, offensive lines just need to creep back toward average, right? So like intuitively, we knew the teams with the best offensive lines, they're not the best offenses, but the teams that have terrible offensive lines, they've got no shot. So if, so if you're at least somewhere in between, then you point to the QBs and the receivers, right? So we'll talk about that in a sec. The other, the one that I was like, man, are you sure? Like, rerun this algorithm. This isn't right. The pass rush versus coverage debate. The idea that coverage was more valuable than pass rush. And I, and I understand 
but it, man, it's just counterintuitive to what we think from a traditional football standpoint. And there's a lot of, yeah, they depend on each other, right? We know that there's some overlap. And then there's the idea of where I'm in between here. It's defense doesn't matter. And that goes back to like, you like, we make this declarative statement, defense doesn't matter. And it, it, a lot of people get pissed off and a lot of people think about it in a more nuanced way, right? So I want to discuss those three, starting with the offensive line. We, we say creep back toward average. What have you found as far as the offensive line and just the importance of the overall unit uh, in that starting five? Well, it's hard because it's a, it's a, a position that takes things on, right? And I think about it very similarly to the way I think about def- being a defensive back in many ways in the sense that the defensive line sort of gets to choose how it attacks you. Um, the, the things that you do positively, so this is the one difference between defense being a defensive back, I think, is the positive things you do, like the benefits are very limited by how what other players do around you, but the negative things you do can almost eliminate the positive things that other people do for you. You know what I'm saying? So like yep. we have a lot of like low war values for players on the offensive line because like if you jump off sides, that's five yards and that's a, like an expected point, let's say. And that's all your fault. And I mean it's like giving up you, a sack. It's it's giving up a sack, essentially. Yeah. And and it, right. And giving up a sack is a little different because the quarterback I think bears some responsibility. I'm, I'm just saying for, I'm just saying for like impact giving. perspective, not as far yeah. as like how well you played, but it's like when you lose five yards, it's like losing five, but except you get the down back. But yeah. Exactly. So, so for think about this for an offensive lineman to recoup that positive value, right? He has to probably be perfect on the rest of his pass blocking snaps. And the team has to sort of come up big on the pat you know, like I always think about it this way, like you get you can have a Tyron Smith blocking for Matt or for uh, Sam Bradford, but if Bradford checks it down every single play, like what's the point? You know right. what I mean? And like like you for every negative play you make, all the almost all of the blame goes to you, but every positive play you make, you share credit with all the other players in the offense. So that's why it's so hard. So your job is not to be brilliant because brilliance doesn't matter if there's nothing else you know, on the rest of your team, your job is to, is to simply not give up that many, that many things. Right. And that's why, again, when you look at, you know, some of the, the, the crazy war values for these linemen, it's really like the TJ Clemmings of the world that stand out to me more than it is like the Ryan Ramchecks of the world uh, or the Mitchell Schwartz's of the world um, that, that stand out from a positive perspective, because you need to be amazing and then have your offense capitalize on it to be all that valuable. So, um, th- that that's kind of a, an interesting truism. I always felt that like it was important, and like there are salary cap implications that I just feel like with adding Brad Spielberger and and I think just becoming more intelligent as a company about it. There are salary cap I- implications about these positions um, that I don't think we quite incorporated into our analysis until recently. But I think off- our offensive our understanding of offensive line play is very much different than you just need to get an amazing left tackle and everything will work itself out. Um, which I think is a little counter to what many people believe. Yeah, and, it, and it's what you said before, right? Like when we talk about a secondary, uh, when Kevin King's out on the field, Tom Brady can attack Kevin King every single time if he wants. And, if he, and, if, and, let, and you have to put a safety over the top maybe to help him. The offensive line is the same way. You can have that amazing left tackle, but if you have a bad right guard, it's not that difficult to attack the guard or the other tackle or whatever. So the idea of being good across the board... Um, what about the, the – pa- again, we, we speak in these 
big high level axioms pass rush versus coverage it's it, it's always far more nuanced than that and i've explained this one a lot on this show i think when you when you really think about it you know just the fact that 65 percent of pass plays have no pressure in the nfl if not more um it does make sense okay the pass rush can be negated and we've seen this intuitively quick passing attacks brady's patriots have done this for years you know just negated a pass rush but when you came was this a conclusion you were surprised with or did you what were you, what were your expectations when you started to debate the merits of say the back seven versus the front four yeah i mean there's a great quote i think it says uh, da- uh you know revere those who are searching for the truth and doubt those who find it like i i very much am trying to disprove this every single day because yeah. it, it's not what i think and you know you watch football every single you know you watch football and our view of the game is very much uh you know very much uh based upon watching the broadcast copy which only sees pass rush in many cases like we we only see the outcome of coverage but we can watch the process of pass rush so we always sort of like you know it's the uh, availability heuristic we're looking at what we see and we're like oh this is important and 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 i think that that has creeped in but you know I, i i would consider them at least equal and here's why i think you know, you can negate a pass rush by throwing quickly. Um, you can also, like, you can also curb a, a you know, good good coverage. Good coverage obviously gives rise. Like, we see them sort of correlate with each other. Like, they're, they're, I think the second pass rush versus coverage article we showed that great coverage grades give rise to longer times to throw. Well, longer times to throw yield higher pressure rates. Sure. Right? So you have that. But also, great pressure, like, great pressure rates yield to faster times to throw so if you're going against tampa bay in the super bowl you're going to throw the ball quick more quickly so then it's easier to cover obviously the less time you have to cover so there's obviously a correlation between the two and they sort of go hand in hand but even in a game this is where like i think my orientation is different than many even in a game like the super bowl where it's clear patrick Mahomes is under siege the whole time they're on 80 percent of their offensive line is banged up with injuries so everybody's looking at that, and the Chiefs obviously too, since you know they made all these moves. I went and wrote an article. I said, like, well, I actually think it was because Sammy Watkins was injured, Byron Pringle's a you know replacement level receiver, and Nicole Hardman hasn't come around. And I looked at the day, and it's like, yeah, the offense goes as the third or fourth or fifth passing option go. Because if you're Tampa, Tampa set the table for their pressure to be great because they allocated coverage resources to Kelsey and Hill, who were always the Chiefs. Like, the Chiefs were dealing with 60% of their offensive line was hurt the whole year. It was Eric Fisher that broke the camel's back, apparently. But what it really was, was Tampa saying, look, we're not scared of Watkins. We're not scared of Hardman. We're not scared of Pringle. We're going to put two guys each on Kelsey and Hill. And then when Mahomes hits his back foot and neither of those guys is open, then he's got to throw the ball to a guy he doesn't really trust. He's got to move around. And by the time that little hesitancy that's caused by coverage, that's more than enough for elite pass rushers like, you know, Sue, Vea, uh, Barrett, and, and Pierre Paul to come in and make plays. And, and to me, again, that's like this sort of symbiotic relationship there. But the fact that the Chiefs had to limit their route tree because their line was bad and their 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 pressure against them was so good, that that's a pass rush influence in coverage situation. So it sort of goes both ways, and it's a really interesting topic. So how, how do you... What do you make of how the Chiefs responded to that? There, it, it was a, it's it's one thing if Eric Fisher was healthy uh, coming into this offseason. If Eric Fisher was healthy and Mitchell Schwartz was healthy, and they could maintain those two guys, 
I mean, those guys, they, they're one of the better tackle tandems in the NFL. Eric Fisher's de developed, and he's been good. Mitchell Schwartz has been arguably the best right tackle in the NFL. So they had to replace both guys. And they, they've got this bitter taste in their mouth about the Super Bowl. Yeah. And, and I keep thinking that they – I think they overreacted a little bit to the offensive line. I know they had to replace those two tackles. I think they overreacted a little bit with their investment. Where do you stand on all of the moves the Chiefs have made on the O-line? Well, they're not going to get a good return on Orlando Brown. I mean, I think that that's a pretty clear thing. They – I mean – Why? You know, Why is when that? I asked them sort of like what, what was that, they're like, well, we just don't have a left tackle. Like, we just literally don't have somebody who's an NFL caliber player there. And actually, they're – probably right like Remmers is a right tackle at best sure Lucas Nang's a right tackle at TCU I think and so they needed a left tackle but like and we've done this analysis over and over like the value of that draft pick they they sold um to Baltimore like Orlando Brown's been one of the most valuable tackles in the league but he did so in a very easy system um and he would need I said something like five or six times more valuable than that draft position to end up making that pick work we'll see what, what ends up happening um but it, they're just not going to get good value there. that being said like we do this thing all the time right you and i buy insurance uh you know and, and insurance is a negative ev play for the buyer that's why insurance companies exist right so like the, the, we all do these things that like that help protect us that if you ran the course of our life ten thousand times would not be worth it right and and so the chiefs i think are doing that and what they what they have as an ace in the hole is the fact that their quarterback, I think, very much took a page out of Tom Brady and, and made a contract that was very, very team friendly. I think I think Mahomes, the most impressive thing about him, aside from, you know, how how much how fast he's gone on the scene is I think his like mentality's right. Like he he wants to win Super Bowls and I think being having the highest contract or having the highest per year, like I think that means less to him than the than the you know, $500 million would suggest. And so that gave the Chiefs some flexibility. They don't have the, but, but I, I do agree with you. I think they over, I think they overdid it. I think the Tooney thing is probably where they overdid it. But, you know, if you look at sort of their investment on the O-line, I mean, they let Mitch Morse go. They let Rodney Hudson go. They let uh, Zach Fulton go. They let Jeff Allen go. They've never invested on the interior of the offensive line. Um, and, and maybe that's where they see, oh, there's our leak. I don't agree with it. I think you, if you have two good tackles, you can patch up the interior. But I think that that, like, I think the Tooney signing was really the, the signal that they were going in a different direction philosophically from what they had always done. So that's the investment. I'm a, a, a huge contract for Tooney, the first rounder for Orlando Brown, but they also have to pay him a year from now as well. So they're, at some point, they're going to have like $35 million locked up just in the left side. And I always preface this with Patrick Mahomes is awesome. He's the best quarterback in the league, but we've never seen him without Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, right? And, um, I, and Eric, I always compare it to the Patriots dynasty, right? The only times the Patriots didn't, weren't a slam dunk Super Bowl caliber team is when their playmakers just were. There were, there were a few years where their playmakers were like bottom three, bottom five in the league. So, and then they rectified it, right? They don't, oh, okay, now we're getting Randy Moss, or, or now we're going to make sure that we've got guys for Tom Brady to throw to. Uh, I don't know if the Chiefs want to explore that. You know, I, I feel like you could explore the world where they have the 20th ranked offensive line and survive. I don't know if you want to explore the world where Tyreek Hill gets hurt or loses a step or Kelsey, and, and you have a bottom five or bottom 10 group of, of playmakers there. Yeah, they were 9-1 and one last year in games decided by one score, including I think the last seven wins they had of the season were by a score or less, maybe it was six. 
I think they felt like they were they were playing too close to the fire last year at times, you know, with an offensive line. I think their starters were like, you know, was it Fisher? They Assembly got injured. Um, uh, Duvernay Tardif was a doctor all season, and then Mitchell <laughs> Schwartz was hurt, and, and then they were sort of piecing center together you know, week by week. So, and they and they would win these games, but they'd only win them, you know, you know, they'd win them close, right? They wouldn't cover the spread, for example. And I think maybe they, they felt, okay, we're moving too close. But, yeah, I mean, if you look at, like, and I don't know if this is a, a canary in the coal mine or just a sign of changing the way he plays, but Travis Kelsey's on-field speed, if you look at NGS or, you know, however you want to measure it, has gone down monotonically the last four years. Um, even though he's still brilliant, you wonder, you know, is there a threshold after which he's no longer elite? Um, so, so you've he, quantified. He so much differently than, than Gronk does. Um, You've quantified you know, game speed did. and um, seen the decline in Kelsey over the last four years. As from a speed, You've quantified game speed and seen the decline in Kelsey over the last four years. Not necessarily in production, but just pure yeah, game not, speed. Yeah, his production is, is, if anything, better, right? Right. But maybe it's changed. Like when, he, when Alex was his quarterback, he was catching bubble screens and running them 70 yards to the house. And now he's sort of more of like – and look, in the playoff game against the Browns, he like was one-on-one -on -one with Denzel Ward and shook the heck out of him. And right. Scored a touchdown. Like, I'm not saying he's declining. I'm saying like he's getting older, right? And Tyreek Hill is, is somewhat injury-prone too. And like the question is, you know, when, when Mahomes is on his rookie deal, you can have the luxury that Sammy Watkins was at 16 million a year to be your third option. But you can't – you don't have that anymore. You have to hit on McCole Hardman. You have to – squeeze value out of Demarcus Robinson and and they you know they try to sign Josh Reynolds Josh Reynolds I think probably regrets going to Tennessee for a uh, hundred thousand dollars more than what the Chiefs offered him uh Juju Smith-Schuster they tried to sign him they got Cornell Powell in the draft he's one of those guys has to work out exactly to your point because it's not clear that Hill and Kelsey are going to play forever all right, let's wrap it up with this. The the famous statement that defense doesn't matter, right? I mean, it, it it's yeah. it's an easy it's an easy statement to be like, what are you talking about? Defense wins championships and I've seen this and I've seen explain exactly what that means and does it really not matter because obviously we just saw the Bucks have a good defensive performance and win the Super Bowl. What is the message you're trying to convey with that statement? Well, I'll just say this. So, uh, from a DFS and gambling perspective, like and a props betting perspective <laughs> you know me i bet on a lot of these yes and there was a stretch in the 2019 season where alvin Kamara's rushing prop was the exact same number every single game for like six weeks straight so like clearly the markets are not pricing in defense those markets are not necessarily the sharpest in the world but like the markets aren't pricing in defense all that much defense does matter from a matchups perspective like i think like the cover three teams for example against kansas city do a lot better than the ravens type teams or the steelers types teams um that play more man coverage and blitz and stuff like that so like obviously matchups matter the the whole premise of this is i don't if i'm trying to predict what happens in the nfl and you and the first thing you say to me is yeah but their defense is this and especially in the extreme I'm going to almost always push back because it's so difficult for a defense to repeat as the number one group. It's so difficult for defense to repeat as the number 32 group, right? And we've seen examples of this, you know, throughout, like the Jacksonville and Minnesota in 2017. 2018, they're not even in the playoffs. Uh, Bears in 2018, 2019, they're not in the playoffs. And these defense didn't become 
like one to 32. They went from one to eight, right? right. But that, 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 but then the offense has to sort of cover that spread and offense is far more stable year to year. And so to ask your offense to make a Titanic leap or to expect it to take a gigantic fall is a lot harder than to expect that to defense. You look at Kansas City, 2018, they were worst defense in the NFL. 2019, they're merely average, and that's enough to win the Super Bowl um, and, and to be more comfortable in the second half of the season than they were in 2018, where they were grinding out, you know, having to win shootouts every single week. So defense doesn't matter is not true, right? It, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an inflammatory statement, but it is a good way to think about. Okay, if I'm thinking too much if i'm trying to predict a game and i'm thinking too much about the defense before i'm thinking about how the table set by quarterback offensive coordinator uh, organizational strength let's even say um because i think it seemed like the colts not particularly talented on defense but they're an a-plus organization in my opinion um if i'm not thinking of those things first and then using defense as sort of a second order variable then i think i'm doing it wrong so that look at that. There is a nuanced way to it. So I, I see this all the time in our little P, you know, Twitter football bubble, right? We see this all the time. And I, I feel like the the not you, but there's other analytics folks who are like, oh, you know, people think that analytics says this, or people think that think that analytics says that. Is there is there an issue in the mess- messaging there? Because if the messaging is like if half the people are like, you think running backs don't matter, I'm not listening to you ever again, or you said defense doesn't matter. You're an idiot. The 2015 Broncos won with defense, and right. So how do you how do you mesh? How do you communicate this stuff? Because you just did it great in a nuanced way, right? I mean, it's like defense matters less than than offense. I mean, that's that's the that's the truth of it. So how do you balance what your findings are versus some of those inflammatory statements, as you said? Yeah, the defense. By the way, the, the Denver Broncos have not only not made the playoffs since they won the Super Bowl with their defense, but have not even beat Kansas City since they won the Super Bowl right. uh, because of defense. And I think that shows sort of exactly what you're talking about, which is defense can matter in the moment, but it's a fleeing thing, right? It's a it's something – because, again, like what – what do you, we, we just had a discussion about offense. What do you need for offense to be great? You need a good coach, a good offensive coordinator, some combination of a good enough offensive line, good enough weapons – good quarterback and good offensive coach. Like that's four things. That's actually not that many. And you don't even need all four of them at once defense. You need five secondary players that are above average or better because the offense will exploit your weakness. You can get attacked. You need at least yep. one good pass rusher, but probably two. And you need linebackers that aren't a complete disaster in the run game and the pass game. Like that's more, those are more degrees of freedom or more degrees. Um, and then you also have the fact that on offense you're attacking. So if you don't have a great set of weapons, you can sort of hide that better than if you have a bad secondary, the other team is not going to hide that for you. They're going to actually do the exact opposite. So I think from a messaging standpoint, it's interesting because I I have this in my Twitter bio football's fun, right? So like football, you like talking trash. You like, it's sort of a trash talking aspect to it. And the other thing is, is, and you, I think you taught me this, Steve, like don't explain yourself. Like, no, I just talked about running backs don't matter. I think, you know, I, I actually said, you know, I think running backs do matter in some cases, and I think Derrick Henry's one of them. But, and then once you say but, every Titans fan has stopped listening to you anyway, right? So what's the point of, like, going from the whole, like, I actually am going to downplay the whole idea of Henry to, like, I, I think the, the, the gaps are asymmetrical. You know what I mean? And 
And I think like having shorthand that we talk about with our friends on Twitter, I sort of think about Twitter as sort of like an open mic night for comics, uh, you know, for football analysts. Like I'm riffing out there and, and, you know, some of my friends in the analytics community are like, oh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. But then we have these discussions intelligently with football people and they know like everybody who's talked to any one of us, George, me, Timo, anybody knows that we don't actually think defense doesn't matter. We just think, we, we, we say defense doesn't matter as sort of a shorthand to say, of the things I think about first, defense doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? So I think that that's really where I, you get kind of the disconnect. But the, the fact of the matter is most people aren't listening to your third and fourth words anyway, right? So whether, you know, if you get out the first order thing, then that's kind of, you know, I'd rather that first order thing be a, a, a strongly held opinion than a or not like a strong opinion weekly held than it being like something wishy-washy because then no one's you know that that's why football analytics before we showed up wasn't making any headway right because people would you know the we're you know i for good or bad like we've we've moved the message forward quite a bit by making inflammatory statements and then explaining ourselves to the to the people with good faith later uh, would you agree within a season however how do you handle this if last season you've got you Aaron Rodgers DFS or otherwise and he's going to play the Rams defense and I know he beat them in the playoffs he's going to play the Rams defense versus the Falcons defense Falcons got torched all last year the Rams were that team that you know wasn't allowing big plays and everything how much does that affect your perception of Rodgers going into that week whether it's from a fantasy DFS standpoint or simply I'm predicting the Packers uh to win or lose or cover the spread great question I mean I would say the Packers and the Rams game in the playoffs illustrates exactly why we overcorrect for defense right because literally one thing happens and that's Aaron Donald gets injured for half the game and what was the biggest lock of the entire season which is the Rams defense is amazing shut down Tampa Bay shut down Seattle three times you know right. et cetera, et cetera, becomes not it becomes exactly nothing right away whereas you know it takes like literally the quarterback getting hurt the most protected position on the planet or you know, in the case of Andy Reid, like a, a you know monumental distraction to curb those things, right? So, yeah, I mean, of course, like if I have if I have the Packers in the playing in a dome against the Atlanta Falcons, versus if I had another copy of the Packers playing outside in Lambeau Field against the Rams, like I'm going to take the Packers against the Falcons, but but at the same time, like there's never like those two things, you know, like the characteristics of the Packers, I think, are more unique than the differences between the Rams and 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 the Falcons once you play the whole game out because so many things can happen that, like, affect that rating, whereas not that much can affect Rodgers' rating versus, let's say, the next quarterback, like Stafford, let's say. All right, Eric, I know you got to go, but I, one last thing I need you to confirm for me. Domes do really matter, right? How big of an yes. impact do domes have on the passing attack? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And you saw it like, look, man, Brady, Brady, it's not even domes. It's like good weather and bad weather too. Like right. Brady went from a, like Brady's passing statistics last season were absurd. And like, you can't tell me that part of that isn't obviously the receivers, by the way, another, another point for loading up at wide receiver is uh, that I was watching the NFC title game yesterday and Tyler Johnson, the fifth wide receiver for Tampa, made like a humongous catch down the back shoulder and everything. Yeah, and, it, and it's like, and, the, and not to mention Scotty Miller's plays in that game. But like, 
but yeah, weather matters for sure. I mean, all these contextual things matter. Do they matter? Like I would even say weather matters more in a DFS matchup than maybe not more than defense, but like they should be considered on the same order of magnitude. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's why I, I think you should look at passing offenses and say, what has their situation been? And it's like, I love Matt Ryan. He's graded well for us through the years, but he's had a, with Julio and a dome, he's had a pretty favorable yeah. situation on the same. Stafford the same, too, man. Stafford, Stafford has too. it. Although Stafford goes to a dome in LA, but like, he does. There's more domes around the about NFL. Some like wounded, like brilliant player here. We're talking about a guy who's gotten a lot of coaches and offensive coordinators fired. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot more domes around the NFL too, which is good for the NFL and explosive plays and all that stuff. So anyway, go check out Eric's work at the PFF forecast, of course, over at PFF.com. He's the, the heart and soul of all the numbers and, uh, grades and stats that are that are coming out uh, in the fantasy world uh, and of course with every NFL team and all the college teams so thanks Eric appreciate it thanks Steve thanks for having me on this is fun yeah buddy we'll see you soon all right that was great from Eric Eager co-host of the PFF forecast again be sure to go uh, download and subscribe to wherever you're listening to our podcast and all of the great PFF podcasts uh, Mike Renner and Austin Gale. We're going to have Mike Renner on here on Thursday, by the way. So he's going to join me Thursday talking all things NFL draft, but really getting into some player evaluation stuff. Co-host of the Two for One Drafts podcast. They're in the middle of rebranding. They're going to have a whole new name. It's going to be a whole new world over there. So go download and subscribe. Ian Hartitz doing a great job with all of our fantasy analysis. The PFF podcast mix is strong. So be sure to join all of those guys. And also right now, this is what you need to do. PFF.com. PFF's 2021 Best Ball Draft Kit. Tiered rankings to projections to target targetable stacks to the season's favorable matchups. It's all there. The only resource you'd ever need to wreak havoc across best ball formats all summer long. I love best ball. You just kind of set it and forget it. And PFF has the best data for all of that. So go check it out. PFF.com. It's our 2021 Best Ball Draft Kit. So that's it, Sam. I switched sides. I took your seat. We took over. Went full monologue style. We brought in Eric. Let's go to that wide shot. It's just me this week. Sam's on vacation, but it doesn't matter. We carry on here at the PFF NFL Podcast. Be sure to continue to email us. PF, uh, it's NFLpodcast at PFF.com. Love all of the, email and the emails and interaction. You guys help fuel this show. So keep those emails coming in. And uh, we'll be back here on Thursday with Mike Renner talking about player valuation 2022 NFL draft and his favorite drafts looking back in 2021. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you guys Thursday.